Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. My name is Mike Navina, and thanks so much for being here with me today. Today, my guest is Sean O'Keefe. Now, if you're not familiar with Sean, Sean is a record producer, mixer, and engineer based out of Chicago. He's best known for his work with bands like Fall Out Boy, Hawthorne Heights, Plain White Tees, Beach Bunny, and he's just working on amazing records. And in this conversation, we have a really fun chat. One of the things that we get into in this interview is the process of learning how to become a better engineer. And we talk about this a lot on the podcast in various bits, but I love the way Sean describes his process. And inside, you're going to hear how he analyzes things and things that he's steps that he's taken to be able to identify how to get his mixes to sound the way he wants to. Because I know for a lot of people listening, you've probably tried to record your music and you've compared it against your favorite artists and your songs just don't sound the same way. Maybe there's an element that's missing or, you know, you just you don't have the right tones or that kind of stuff. And inside of this interview with Sean, we get into his process behind getting his mixes and getting his productions to sound as good as what his vision is for these songs. So I think Sean does a great job of explaining that process there. We also get into some really cool conversation about the idea of what tracks sound like when they're isolated versus when they are actually heard in the context of the mix. And Sean gives us a lot of great insight as to what your tracks might actually sound like when you're soloing them and how they'll sound actually quite different in the context of the mix. And he talks about the differences in different instruments. And I think this is a really important thing to to note as well, because when you're chasing sounds, you often just hear things at surface level. But as you're going to hear in this interview, there's a lot more happening underneath the hood, and Sean gets into that as well. So yeah, there is a ton of great stuff inside of this interview, so let's not waste any time. Let's just jump right into it. This is my interview with Sean O'Keefe. Sean O'Keefe, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix Podcast. How are you doing, man? I'm, I'm good, man. How are you? I'm doing awesome. For people who might not know your story and how you got into this, can you give us a little background on who you are, what you do, how you got into production and mixing? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, let's see. I'm uh, usually uh, considered a record producer and a mixer um, and an engineer. Um, that's pretty much all I do. <laughs> um, and uh, let's see. I, you know, probably like most people, I came up in in bands. Um, I uh, kind of started playing guitar really early on, and then kind of quickly shifted over to drums um, when the the drummer of my band left his drum set in our basement and I went out and started playing those and 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 they seemed more fun to play at the time than guitar and so I kind of put the guitar down and um, and did drums and I became the the drummer of our band uh, at some point and so anyway I, I played drums in a bunch of bands in high school um, and and after high school too and um, yeah, and I was, you know, I was that guy in the band who was interested in recording. You know, I I think I was fascinated with um, um, recordings in general. Um, I've said this in some other kind of interviews, but it, it, I think the the turning point for me was um, 
my brother, my older brother's car when I got my license and I would drive around in his car and there was a cassette player and I would put in like bad religion uh, cassettes. I call them records, but you know, and, um, and like Goldfinger and a lot of these like kind of, this is like, I guess this is mid nineties um, bands like, like Avail and um, Operation Ivy and the Descendants was probably one of my all time favorite kind of bands at the time. Um, and I, I basically just got obsessed with the sound of, of recordings and, and I wanted to figure out what that meant, like how we could get our band basically to sound like that. Um, and so it kind of just became an obsession that, that truthfully hasn't really stopped um, <laughs> to this day. It's pretty much the same. And um, yeah, and I just I kind of rode that out. And then, you know, there's a, a series of, of events, obviously, that took place from there to kind of um, to get to, you know, a place where I was making records. But um, but it all started there. It was good. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I, I love all those bands that you mentioned, too. Like, that's totally what I grew up with and what I love. And so, yeah, it's oh, awesome. Seriously? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good stuff, right? It's yeah. all awesome stuff. Yeah. So it's so it's interesting. I mean, you you kind of said that you you were listening to music as like a fan, and something in those songs just drew your attention, and you you somehow got into the idea of recording. You know, what was that transition like? What what kind of things were you paying attention to? Because the average listener does not listen to recordings and think like they don't even notice the differences in the recordings half the time, right? It's like they're just listening to the song. So 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 when you were listening to these songs and thinking like there's something different here, like what are they doing? Like how, what was that process looking like? That's such a good question. I yeah, that um boy, it's hard to remember back exactly what was going through my brain, you know, that long ago. Um but I think let's see. I'm I'm certain that the thing that I was most excited about was obviously the music. It was the energy of the music coming out of the speakers. And I, I just loved freaking turning it up and, and driving and, and listening to those records. It gave me such a, like a rush. And, and then I think it was probably like, how do I get my band to sound like, sound like that? Like how, how can we do that? And so then it became a question of like, um, well, okay, I, we got to record and like, and what does that like, what does that mean? And, and so I probably started getting interested in putting it together. And then I probably, when I started trying it, um, and I eventually was able to like put it in my car or whatever and listen and, and it sounding nothing remotely like what I like was used to hearing. I, I probably assumed it was not super hard, you know, to do and, and had a, a huge reality check. And then I think, then that probably became the time that I started pondering or, you know, thinking about how do I, how did the drums sound like that? Why don't my drums sound like that? Why doesn't my vocals sound like that? You know, overall, why does it not sound anything like this? And, um, yeah. And I was probably thinking about all of those things, but like you said, probably because of failure, not, you know, not because of like, like everybody else, like you mentioned, who who listens to records and doesn't really pay attention to that stuff, I may not have either until I started trying it, and and then and then it failed, and then I was like, okay, now I got to figure it out. <laughs> gotcha. Um, yeah, that's that's a really interesting point, and and I think that like there's there's a couple things to take from that, and uh, one of which is like the the idea of just just going for it and just doing it and like having that failure and and like. And then and then asking yourself that question of like, you know, what 
how, what am I doing wrong? What like what might have what what they might have what might they have done versus what am I doing? You know? Yeah. Oh, dude, totally. And and honestly, that's the same as it is today. You know, it's like like I'll make a record and I'll I'll go through a mix and I go and listen to it and it's and if something isn't working, it's like fuck. What's like why isn't that sounding the way I want it to sound? You know, and the way I want it to sound is probably completely informed by all the things I'm used to hearing that I love, you know, like that's, that's defined the sound in my head of what I'm going for. And so then it's, it's the same effectively. It's like, oh, get back to the studio and let's figure this out <laughs> until it sounds the way you want it to sound. I don't, that hasn't ended in any way. I think it's probably out of the gate. It's probably, it gets incrementally closer, hopefully, you know, uh, over time <laughs> than, it, than it was when I was, you know, 15 or whatever. But, uh, that's probably the only big difference, you know, <laughs> it's why it's pro it's still interesting to me. You know, it's because it's it's a challenge and it's it's a I suppose if it was everything was super easy and you could just make it sound the way you wanted to, you would get bored with it, I would think. Yeah, I, it's funny because it's like we I think a lot of people go through the experience like a lot of engineers go through ex the experience of being in a band and going to a studio and maybe having a bad experience with someone. And then you're like, I could do it better. And it's like, it's what you said. It's like, we all think it's so easy because we just see somebody pressing a couple of buttons and we're like, yeah, I can, I can do that. I can click the mouse, you know? And then once you actually do it, you start messing up and you're like, or it doesn't sound as good. And then you're like, Oh, like shit. Like there's more to this, you know? And, uh, and I also love what you said about just how it's still a process for you where you're where you're chasing those sounds and you're learning. Because I, I was going to ask you, like, what what did you notice you were doing wrong back in the day? Like, if you could, like, think of back, think back to those very first mistakes that you made. Like, what were those things that? Oh, gee, made I mean, I was doing everything wrong. You know, I don't I don't know. Um, well, I shouldn't say that. I, I'm sure I wasn't doing everything wrong because the intention was right. Um and the intention was to try and get it to work, but the the uh, I'm sure the approach was, um, I guess, wrong. I hate saying even wrong, but like um, just because a lot of times doing something wrong sounds really cool, you know, and like and you can get really cool results from fucking something up. But I think it, it's probably more not knowing. Um, not knowing how to solve the problem. So like if your drums for instance, I'm just going to make one up. I, I would assume this happened, but like, you know, you play it back and the drums probably sounded like super flat to me. And, and so maybe my, um, my solution could have been that I had heard somebody talk about a compressor. And so I figured if I compress the crap out of the drums, they're not going to sound flat anymore. When, um, when over time I learned that, uh, no, it's about the balance of the microphones and it's probably about a lot of EQ on the drums, you know, that are like making them lively and, and compression is part of it, but, but only compression is not going to solve that, that problem or, or you know, or whatever it may be. And so, um, yeah, I think it was probably just trying to have to like figure out what better solutions were. Um, uh, I kind of forgot your initial question, but <laughs> No, that makes sense. My, my, no, my question was like, what did you discover you were doing wrong? And I think what you said there is is right, where like you, we tend to I feel like a lot of people when they're first starting, they they tend to find one trick or or, or a tip that someone says and they're like, hey, that's just how all records are done. And like, I'm going to do everything that way. And it's kind of like learning. It's kind of like learning all the different ingredients that go into that recipe of like 
how to shape your kick drum to sound a certain way or your snare or your guitars or your vocals. And, uh, you know, there's lots of different elements depending on what you get. So you have to you do have to learn those tools. You have to learn that workflow and that signal chain and all that stuff to, to get all, to all that of that stuff. And honestly, results, thinking right? back, I mean, look, there is there's so much um, there's so like you just described. There's so much in the process that you effectively have to do well to get it to speak that um, when you're when I was that young to even have a concept of, of that many layers of the process was was probably unreal. Like I probably didn't even understand even close to that, let alone like focusing on on picking one and then and then improving on that because you just there's so much you just don't understand, you know, and there's like, yeah, there's just so much to the process. You know, generally speaking, I think that when when we and I certainly when I listen to the records I love, it's probably a result of um, every step along or most every step along the way was executed with so much intent and focus and hard work. Um, and and it's the culmination of all of those steps along the way that create a really good record, because like as we've all learned, it's not easy to make a great record, especially, you know, a great sounding record and a great record in terms of the content but like and it's like if you think of like a movie or something like that so many things have to be done right uh for it to work and for it to stand out or else everybody would be doing it and and you would have great sounding records just across the board but like it's it's super hard and so um it would be it seems like it would be unusual to me if you had a, a record that sounded great and only half of those steps were done well. You know, I don't, that seems probably like that's not going to happen. Yeah. And so it's more just starting to like uncover all of the things that are involved in terms of the steps. And then you got to look at that and uncover how to how to um better that step, which is a whole like kind of lesson in itself, right? Um, and as you make more and more and more and more records, you start to see those because you go, oh, okay, like this step, um, I didn't really focus on that th uh, step last time, but let's try it. And then when you're done, maybe you go, oh, wow, that made a difference. I I'm hearing the difference. Or it could be like, yeah, last time we paid a lot of attention to this one thing and it actually kind of worked. So let's let's put that attention into this category. And, and you know, it's like anything else. You just keep doing it and you keep kind of seeing the evolution of, of um, the outcome, you know? Yeah. I like how you described it there because – it is kind of like a troubleshooting process where you have to you, you you can't just look at everything at face value and say, like, I'm good at this or I'm bad at this. It's like, OK, how can I constantly improve this? What did I do right? What did I do wrong? How do I you know, what's that next thing I got to try to 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 strengthen your skills and get that experience? And, and you put all those things together and eventually you, you find your sound and what works for you. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Or at least you you understand how to. You understand how to get something musical out of the speakers um, in in a general given situation, you know, like, yeah, you, you get to a point you, where you can probably get something to feel pretty good, even if it's not to your standard, but, but probably by a lot of people's and you start to kind of fit. Yeah, you get, you start to build up enough of a, of a kind of a confidence and a base where you can work your way through most prop manage most situations <laughs> problems. Yeah, I th I think like the confidence in your own skills, like I think that subject alone is 
That, that's like an impossible target for a lot of people, you know? It's it's like, you're always... It, I think if you're trying to constantly evolve and, and move with the time, learn with the times and improve your skills, like, you're you're never going to feel like, yeah, I'm, I'm great at this, you know? At least that's, that's how I think. It's like, there's always something new that someone else is doing that's a cool technique, and I'm like, oh, cool, uh, I can learn about that. I can improve that. A hun- a like, do you find yourself in the same boat? Somebody asked me the other day, uh, what do I do on every single mix? And and the only thing I could think was uh, have a panic attack. It's like, you know, it's like basically, you know, there's a lot of things you do, but but there's always the moment of like, fuck, like, I, what am I doing? Like, I don't like, I don't know what is going on. And, and then, you, and then that's usually the moment where you kind of go, okay, let me, let me figure out what I'm not doing right. And, and let me figure out how I can learn how to make that better. And then, and you got to put your head down and you got to be willing, yeah, to, to learn and, and, and l- figure out some new solution. Yeah. It's, it's, t- it's an endless learning. Music is an endless journey of learning and that's the best part. <laughs> um, yeah, it's great. Yeah. I love the panic attack thing because it's so true. It's like, you know, especially if like if, if the artist sends you a rough mix of their stuff, but their rough mix is actually good. You're like, oh, shit, like now I got to rework these tracks to get it at least to that caliber. Yeah. yeah and then 100%. like do something yeah, better. You know? <laughs> I get that. <laughs> so, 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 yeah, so. You, you talked about like listening to the music and then you just jumped into it. But like, how did you learn this stuff? Was it really just like trial and error? Like, did you do it on your own? Were you working for anyone else or like an yeah, intern? Yeah, I definitely. How, how did that um, start I, for you? I would say I learned all of the the basics, um, like kind of the whole, uh, the fundamentals of like the process on my own, um, just by doing it. I I spent a lot of time in my basement and in my friend's garage from my teenage years in high school up until after high school or right when I graduated high school making a ton of recordings um, my bands other bands I even got involved in this kind of high school thing um, that uh, I went to a really large high school I had like 4,000 people it's kind of like college size and 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 they had a um, like an, an art um, I guess it was a, a magazine uh, every year it came out, it was called Calliope and, and it was supposed to represent all the different uh, forms of art in our high school. And there was like a photography section and a, um, like a drawing section and a, maybe even sculpting that they took pictures of them. Not anyway, I'm not sure how they displayed it all, but, um, and they didn't have music. And, and I, I had asked them, um, why don't we do a music section and I'll record it. And, and so we, we put this whole thing together, which was basically ended up being like something like 22 different bands all submitted their songs and I recorded one song of every band and we made a CD and we added it to this thing. And, and I think that that Calliope, uh, I think Calliope still exists in my high school. And I think the audio portion still exists, which is like pretty cool. Um, but, um, so that right there in my senior year, I recorded 22 different bands in their songs and in all over the spectrum of, of style. And, and obviously I had no idea what I was doing and and they didn't, I'm sure they didn't come out very, very great, but, um, but man, I learned a ton, like just doing that. Um, and so that was kind of the first phase of my learning was just all trial and error by myself. Um, and you know, there were no podcasts, there was obviously no internet at that time. I'm old enough where that didn't exist. And so there's no YouTube. Um, I think I probably read some stuff in magazines, but generally speaking, I think it was just trial and error. You know, I think it was just like just figuring it out because, you know, eventually you plug the stuff in, you're going to figure it out. And um, and and then um, 
I tried to go to school. I, I hated school, uh, college for it. I, I dropped out like six weeks later um, and continued doing the recording on my own. And then eventually I got a, an internship. I, I kind of told myself if I'm not going to go to school, I would I want to get an internship at a proper studio. And, and I, I, I tried to get an internship for a while and eventually I got one. And that was at a real studio in Chicago where I'm from, in the city. And and I would say easily that was phase two of of my education and and you know they had a a, a, a vintage Neve um, eighty fifty eight console which is now a super even then it was considered a very iconic you know um, kind of recording console and they had a, a Studer eight twenty seven tape machine and, and Pro Tools was kind of being born and introduced into the equation but it was very much the old school kind of method of recording with analog tape and track sheets and gain staging and all this stuff I didn't know anything about any of that. And I certainly learned all of that from the staff at that studio. And it, it took, yeah, that was, that was the next phase of, of my education. Um, and honestly, from there, it was just, it evolved into just making records and, and everything else learned, um, would be just through the, through the process. Um, but, um, that was my learning process. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. And I think when you observe other engineers kind of in their element and seeing what they're doing, like you kind of you learn ways to like use the machines and use the gear in ways that you didn't think you could. And that just really opens your eyes up to a lot of things. I, you know, I've talked about this on my podcast before, but I remember like the first time I saw I was interning at a studio and I saw like the engineer just crank the shit out of a Neve preamp. So it would distort super heavily for this guitar part we were recording. And I was like, yeah, I was always told yeah. we're not supposed yeah. to do that. You know, like, and he's like, yeah, forget everything you ever learned in school. Like we do things different here. Yeah, so that's like, so cool just do what because you need to, I had a very know? similar experience <laughs> and it was like, they, they show you that kind of thing and you're like, great. And I, I remember I had a band that was like, kind of a this is later on but like a little later on but a band that was like a real national touring act that I was working with and 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 they asked me how to distort something or if we could distort it and I was like oh yeah I saw one guy do it with a preamp and I remember turning it up thinking they're gonna be like that sucks like I don't want that and I was like here we go and I turned it up and they were like fuck yeah turn it up more and I was like cool and I did that more and they're like yes and so often the band will give you confidence in in doing things wrong um or outside of the box and i would say honestly most of the time when when i learn something it's because i'll tr i'll be willing to try something and the band will react and say that's cool and it, you go okay great if they think it's great then that's all that counts because like they're the ones it's their record and so it's like um i would rather have yeah they probably like instill the most amount of confidence in me in terms of trying new ideas but um there was something else you also said that i yeah, I can't remember. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent. It's um, yeah, stuff is good. <laughs> yeah, you just have to kind of see what people are doing, and you or, or you try things, and you find those happy accidents that work, and all of a sudden that's like a new thing that you can go back to whenever yeah. you yeah, you need that situation yep. again, right? Yeah, cool. I'd love to shift gears a little bit and talk about your productions. Um, and I'd love to know, like, when when you start working with a, an album or an artist, how involved do you like to get in producing an album? And what does that process look like to you? Because I feel like the term producer has so many different meanings these days. So what does it that look looks like, like to you? Ideally, whatever the, the, the band and the record um, demands, you know, um, 
Uh, yeah. So, so that, that can be, um, it can, it can easily vary. Um, it can vary from, for me, it's anywhere from, um, demos that are not completed songs, um, or even just ideas and getting in a rehearsal room with them and, starting to connect the dots with those ideas and form them into um, full songs and um, and then um, and then carry through all the way you know to the end of the, the process obviously um, and um, and then the other side of that might be a band who comes to the table with uh, songs that are, effectively fully realized and um and they're looking for somebody to um get a good recording that has captures the energy and the vibe of those songs and as a as an opinion um as a trusted opinion to weigh in along the way when there's doubt or question um and and then it can be anywhere in the middle, in between all that. Uh, I I happened to when I started doing this, I came from I guess a a recording background in terms of that I I understood the engineering part of it. Um, even though I actually really came from a, a band background, I was in bands. I mean, a musician background. Um, but the the point being that um, when I started doing it, just because out of necessity, I was technically engineering the record, producing the record and mixing the record. Um, and that stuck with me. I, I, I've maybe only a couple of times been in a situation where I've, um, where I've had an engineer with me and, um, and have not, I guess, technically engineered the record. Even then it's, it's even then I probably was still involved in that. Um, and maybe once where somebody else mixed the record, but, just because I, I did all that stuff. So um, I guess the point of that is that um, that's also my involvement in making the record is is assuming the engineering duties, the, the production, which is um, really the opinion part of it. Um, and, and then the, the mixing um, and those that can be a juggling act, you know, to, to do all those. Um, but um yeah, so it's I think it's it's really dependent on on the band, you know, because it, it would be in my mind, it would be a mistake if you had a band who really had fully realized songs that that you loved. I, I can think of a band once that I, I made a record and I loved their stuff and I didn't know really what else to change other than a few things. So for me to start inserting opinions of changing things for no other reason than just to do it would, would have been terrible. Like, um, and I don't want it. I don't, that's not the goal at all. The, the, the goal is to, um, make the, you know, the, the best version of that record for that band that you can. And so you kind of have to assess the situation coming into it and you have to, you have to ask, um, a lot of questions too and see what they want, you know? Um, and then hopefully find a good, collaboration for that particular project to get it to the finish line. Absolutely. So then do you typically find yourself getting involved in like the songwriting process or is it kind of more of like the, 
you know, after the song has been written? I guess it guess it d- depends on the the artist, but um, yes and no. I I've never myself. I've I've never written a song with a band. That's that's literally never, at least that I can think of. I don't think that's ever happened on a record. Um, I don't um, I don't feel comfortable doing that. Um, it's not. Yeah, it's just something I just I, I simply don't feel comfortable doing. I do feel very comfortable um, with somebody bringing a lot of ideas that they've written and then helping shape those ideas. Um, you know, I've told this story once or twice before, but um, like a, a probably a really good example of that um, with a with a known band is Fall Out Boy with uh, Take This to Your Grave. Um, Patrick is very much the songwriter in that band. Um, and um, and other than the lyrics, I, Pete, I think, writes all the lyrics or almost all the lyrics. Um, but but in terms of the music and the melody, it's it's very much Patrick. And um, and so when I first started doing stuff with them, he had some songs written and we recorded them and, and they were basically the first set of songs we did, like a few songs, were very realized. And and we just kind of went through the motions of getting them down, um, you know, and there was a lot of ideas along the way of how to better them, but the song was written. And and then the second, uh, we did a couple more tunes and, and they were less realized, but the ideas were there and I helped um, kind of connect the dots. And it was, it, more so in a way, if I'm, it's hard to remember very specifically, but probably generally like, hey, Patrick, I think that that, that melody is really strong. And but I don't think the the like the rhythm behind it and the drums is really is working. Let's try something else. Um, and um, and then and then I can remember when we made the rest of Take This to Your Grave, um, Patrick was under a time crunch and and was nervous that he didn't feel he had the record really written, um, but we had scheduled recording time because the label had scheduled a tour and all this stuff, and he was under time pressure. And so I said to him, knowing he must have something, and, and he's a really prolific writer, um, why don't you give me what you do have? And, and he came into my studio with an acoustic guitar, and I think it was something like 39 ideas. And and, and they were, um, yeah, they were, they were often really um, short. It might've just been a verse or a chorus or a verse and a chorus. I don't know that any of them were longer than a minute. Um, and, and I said, just give them all to me. I don't care. And, and he recorded them and I put them on a CD and we, I think we had like, yeah, something like 39 tracks and we both went and we, um, on our own started making notes of like, I like this, I, I, this feels strong. This doesn't feel as strong. Um, and then we did a, a super pre-production situation where for, I think it was, pretty much an entire month, um, most days a week, him and I, and often the drummer went into rehearsal and, and it was a kind of a game of, um, comparing notes and what if he put this with that and, and let's try that. But, but Patrick would do it. And again, he was, he's very much the writer and, and he connected those dots and I kind of would make suggestions. So, I would say that's the most I've ever gotten involved in songwriting, but I don't still consider that songwriting because I never sat down and and offered a new melody or a new chord progression. I just kind of took the pieces and started moving them around. Um, and I feel really comfortable doing that um, when there's time and when there's, you know, when there's something really good to work with. Um, that can be a dangerous thing. I've hesitated telling that story to, to some other bands that I'm going to work with because sometimes I found 
that bands will use that as permission to not really write and and not come prepared and 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 expect that it's going to turn out like that and that's often not the case um it, it was done out of desperation um it, had patrick had more time he would have finished those ideas and um and so yeah it's you know that's as close as i've ever gotten to what i would consider songwriting but i don't consider it songwriting yeah that's fair i i, I agree with you on that i think it's kind of it's more like arranging, you know, it's, it's, it's taking those ideas and someone else has already done the majority of that work. You're just kind of putting the puzzle pieces together and making it look good or sound good. Yeah, right. That's right. That's so right. Then, yeah. So then in your opinion, I love to ask this question cause it throws people off. <laughs> what makes a good right. song? <laughs> <laughs> cause you're that's, taking all these pieces and a bunch of them are good, but how do you yeah, put them yeah. together to make the perfect song? Something that feels good, you know. I, I don't know how to answer that other than that's it. Look, you could go, you could dissect. I I could take, I could pick fifty songs I love or as many, you know, a billion, and you could take an amazing Beatles song and you could start to say what makes this good. And it's oh shit, like uh, you know, McCartney, like he did this like cool like chord change here, and or he put that melody over this this unique um, part or. Or they added this obscure instrument, or or man, they didn't go to the second chorus after the second verse, you know, or um, it slows down here, or there's an infinite amount of things you could say, but I'm not thinking about any of that when I like the song. Like I don't know that that's what made it good. It's just that it feels if it feels good, it's good. Um, and then I don't I don't know. It's a great question. I don't know how to answer that. Um, it's just what you like. It's your taste, you know. Um, you, ha- you have to trust your instinct. Yeah, you got you got to trust. It. If you're not trusting your own instinct and your own taste, at that point, you're probably just going to run into a lot of problems because you're going to start guessing what a good song is and guessing what a good idea is, and and by what barometer, you know, like um, if it's not your own taste, I don't know what you're left with at that point. <laughs> you're just guessing. That sounds miserable. <laughs> no, but you're right though. I think I think you listen to a song and you can very quickly decide I like this or I don't like this. It's not really like I'll tolerate this song. You know, you like you, you have to make that decision of like am I going to continue or am I going to just turn this off, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, so it's like it it, what makes it good. If you it, what's the difference, you know, it's like if if you eat something, if you have a meal from a restaurant or watch a movie, what, what makes you decide if you like it or not? If you like it, <laughs> you know, it's like, that's it. Like it, it's, you're not going, well, does it have this one in, did the chef use this one ingredient? Because if he did, then I actually, I don't like this, even though it tastes good to me right now. It's like, but if I learn later that he did this, I'm going to decide retroactively. I don't like this. That's bullshit. <laughs> like you like it or you don't, you know, just you, you react, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So when it comes to those songs that you're not quite feeling, would you say that there's any commonalities or certain elements as part of them that make you not enjoy them? Yeah. Um, again, it's a, it's, it's a similar reaction of um, I'm enjoying this and all of a sudden I'm not enjoying it. And, and then I get, that's when, that's when you have to, it's, it's usually, it's usually it's a it's a good question. It's it's usually one of of kind of I guess maybe two things. And I'm um, but I'm thinking this out loud. It if you hear something and it's it's not happening anymore, 
either it's obvious, like, you know, you listen and you go, man, like, um, so I come from a drumming background. And so usually if I don't like the drums, it's very obvious to me. And I go, I hate that groove. I hate the way that feels. It just doesn't make any sense to me. And, um, and that's obvious. Um, and then, uh, and then you fix it, um, and you figure out what, what, what would make it feel right to you. And then you got to decide, does it feel right to them? And, and you, you know, you, you're collaborating, but, um, or, or sometimes it's, I don't know what it is, but I'm bored or like, or this, this isn't catching me. And, and then you kind of got to look under the hood and, and maybe start to dissect it and try things. And it's, um, you know, for one thing that might not be, I'll give an example, a hypothetical that may not have been obvious is, you know, it's, I don't know what's going on here, but when I get to this one part, it's just, it's just, I'm losing interest. And, and then maybe you look at it and you go, yeah, the vocal melody is like, you're just, it all stays in the same register or, and maybe that's what it is. Let's try this. And then you try it and the vocal melody goes in a different register. And it's like, yeah, you know what, actually that kept me engaged or it's, um, what's going on like in the chords and sometimes it'll reveal itself that, oh, the chord changes in the verse and the chorus are actually the same chord changes. And it's like, and sometimes that's cool. And, but, but, but maybe in that instance, it's, um, can, can we try different chord changes and then maybe it works and you're like, great, that was it. Let's, let's move on. So, so yeah, it's, if you're lucky, it'll present itself to you, and and if not, you gotta open, you gotta get under the hood, and you gotta start working. Yeah, know? that's that's uh, fair. That's, that's fair part, for sure. That's part of the job. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with a lot of that. I think y- you you've kind of you've kind of had this like theme with a lot of your answers so far of just like kind of reevaluating, you know, whether it's your audio skills and how you can improve upon those, or if it's the music. It's like you you seem to have this very like. Uh, like an approach where you really do pay attention to those details and you're considering like your alternative up your, your alternatives there to see like, okay, how, how can I make this better? What's the next step? What's the th- next thing to try? Um, it's, it's cool. I think, I think it all definitely comes together to, to ultimately shape the sound that you've, you, you have on your records, which is very cool. One thing I think you do really well with your recordings, and this is probably a bit of a production technique, I think a little more than mixing, but I think you do electric guitars really, really well. And especially like distorted guitars. I, I've always found that when I listen to mixes like anything that you've done with like Fall Out Boy or Motion City Soundtrack or Punchline, like when I listen to those songs, the guitars they always sound like big, wide, but and, and they've and they've got some drive to them. They're definitely like they hit you hard, but they still sound very clear, very defined, and I feel like I can like hear the notes in them still. Like there's like I can feel the attack in them. And I'm curious to know, like, what's your secret to getting guitars to have that size but still retain that definition? Yeah, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, honestly, I, I don't really know. I mean, I, I think that probably a lot of that has to do with the guitar player, to be honest, and um, and the way that they um, just the control over the guitar and maybe the sound that we pick. I mean, you know, with every band is different. Some bands rely on me to get their sound and some bands have a sound and you just go, great, that sounds great to me. Like, let me just record it. Um, I think, um, you know, the why thing is, is relatively simple in terms of what I do because I just pan shit all the way left and right. It's like, I can't stand when things are panned, not all the way out to the sides. Cause it just feels 
closed into me. It's like, I've never really gotten that a lot. Like as I've, as I've like evolved, I, I, you know, I've, I've tried to use panning, um, as like a, is a dynamic, um, arrangement tool in terms of like in verses, you know, uh, bring things in and, and then chorus having, you know, come out wider. But even then I'm such a sucker for, for stuff left and right that I, I often will, um, get rid of halfway pannings. Um, I, I struggle with that, but like, um, yeah. And then honestly, guitar, like, um, the gain stuff, you know, I, I feel like I can, I can think, um, of a lot of instances where the kind of the, that was a big goal was just how gainy, how many, how gainy does it need to be to appear gainy, but, um, but still hear the notes. And a lot of times, a lot of times that's an illusion. It's like with a lot of tones. And I always say this to people trying to learn this stuff. It's like, um, if you were to listen to a record that you love and and you were magically able to hit solo on any instrument, it would probably surprise you what that sounds like um, because the mix inherently eats up a lot of what's going on behind it. And, and so usually um, if you solo something in the context of things, it has a lot more going on than than you might think. There's um, uh, it's usually not the opposite. Like um, and so. Um, yeah. And so I think with guitars, that's, that's also a thing is, um, you just got to find, you got to find what you want it to sound like in the end and somehow reverse engineer that. And, um, and I, I don't know, it's just, just trial and error. I wish I knew it. I had a secret. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. Cause like, cause I totally agree with you that when you solo an instrument, it tends to sound totally different than it does in the context of the mix. And I especially feel that way with bass. Like I feel at least with my recordings, like I love to distort the shit out of bass guitars, but then when you hear it in the mix, you don't really notice that distortion a lot of the time. And, and so I'm curious to know if it's a similar situation for you with guitars where like when you solo your guitars, do you, do you find that they tend to sound gainier or are they a little more on the clean side yeah you know what it's so funny because the the bass thing 100 percent uh you know that's that happens that's my experience too it's like the the bass is way brighter and way more distorted when you solo it than you would ever think and and ba that's a thing just as a sidetrack kind of thing or side note that's a thing with bass players when you're tracking them i think often in a studio uh bass players are used to the bass appears very like, like it has a lot of weight underneath the mix and, and they expect to hear that when they're dialing up a sound. And if, if you give them a sound that's even remotely close to what it's going to be, it usually the feed, the, the response is, man, it's pretty bright. Where's all the low end. And, um, and so you, it's a, that's a balancing act, but guitars, I, it depends, man. It's like, on really gainy guitars, honestly, they probably appear less gainy when you solo them. Um, and everything else kind of, when you put it all in, it makes them sound a little bit more gainy. Um, but then like, like clean guitars and stuff like that, it's the opposite. Like clean guitars, when you solo them, they got more going on, you know, like to get them to speak through that mix. Um, yeah, that's probably the best I can think. No, that, that's <laughs> cool. It's, guitars. A, it's a really interesting observation because... Yeah, there's like these there are these opposite sort of situations when you really solo the track. And and I think that for people who are chasing tones, we tend to just kind of hear it at the face value of the mix and think like, oh, like that bass is just that's all low end. And, and that's why I'm hearing it. And I think we also get this idea in our head that bass is supposed to be low end and like 
basic was low end, so I'm not going to touch the top end. And and it's like, well, no, when you solo it, like that's that's what's actually happening. That's the secret to it, you know? <laughs> yeah, to get someone to speak through a mix means a lot. Usually, you know, it's it's crazy. And 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 you know, that's another one with 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 drums. I think that um, people, as you get as you figure out more and more about drums, you often learn now. It, again, the context is is everything here. So if we're talking about an aggressive mix versus a, a you know like a, a mellow thing but if we're talking about an aggressive situation um drums the amount of eq and presence and additive stuff to drums is obscene that you, often to make them sound normal to our, to my ear at least and um yeah it's um and in even the amount of space that exists behind the kit to make them appear dry is is kind of uh, amazing at times um just because the guitars and the vocals and the space and the vocals eat up all the all the space and the instruments start to live together and eat themselves up and then they appear more dry you know um and um but if you solo them they often sound more ambient than you might expect i love that that's a great i i love the way you're describing all this because i i think it really makes people i think people listening to this are going to listen to their mixes and think like okay i'm going to try adding a little bit more ambience to this and see how it actually sounds in the context of the mix versus thinking like i just need to dry so there's going to be no room sound because i think that's just the natural path that most people would go right they just think the obvious thing is to just get rid of all that room if i if i want dry drums but <laughs> yeah what a long time ago when i was um when i was really trying to learn um how to basically further my sounds I, I took the painstaking time to go through um, a ton of records that I loved that I was able to think of or find isolated moments where the drums played for four bars by themselves um, or the bass played or even the vocals or guitars, uh, but particularly drums and, um, and, and bass, actually. Um, and if you think of records, you can find those spots. They, they exist, you know, um, but it takes a lot of time. And then I went and I, I brought those into Pro Tools and I looped them. And, and then I made playlists and I basically had a playlist of like effectively what would have been a moment of a drum stem from a record I loved of like 20 different records of drum sounds. And I would have them in a Pro Tools session and I would spit them out a separate set of outputs on my um, console thing. And, and so that if I was ever getting lost in a mix and I felt like my sounds just weren't there, I could basically put up a bunch of other sounds that I loved. And it wasn't about trying to chase one of those sounds in particular, but it was an overall situation of, okay, like I could, I could A, B and go, oh my God, overall, these other 10 records have so much more ambience on the drums or so much more top end or so much less low end or so much more mid range. Let me at least get out of the gutter and let me get in the ballpark and then let me refine my sound. And I found it to be super helpful. It took a lot of time to do that. I mean, I, I'm, I'm glad I did it, but um, I think now you can just probably find stems online. You know, I would assume of tons of yeah. records you have. Yeah. I wish I had that back then, but um and and I it was it was a good learning experience for me. That's such a cool approach, man. Like, cause I've always told people like use reference tracks for sure. You know, I think that helps you find your balance of like the top end versus low end and everything. But I love that you went that extra level of just breaking it down to the actual instruments and having those. That's a very cool approach. Yeah, I I, I wish I could have if I could have the kick in the snare soloed up, you know, every individual mic soloed up process, I would, I, I just want to know, you know, it's like, I want to know what's, what's in that recipe, you know, like, um, yeah, so I can, I can better my own. 
<laughs> that's very cool. I love that, man. That's that's a really cool approach. I'm definitely gonna have to to do that. And that's a great it's a great exercise just to like improve your critical listening skills too. Because again, like you know, going back to what I said early on, like so many people just listen to music as a fan and they don't really get into the nitty gritty of like what's actually happening on those individual tracks. So to to find those little those little clips, it definitely makes a lot of sense. That's awesome. It's, it's pretty it's pretty cool. You'll you'll learn at least what I found was that. Um, when you think, when you take a sound for what it is and you're listening and then, you know, you just assume, oh, okay, it's kind of ambient, it's kind of compressed or whatever. And then you try and do it and you're a, you know, you're really a being with the actual sound. You quickly realize, holy shit, like they are really, they're going a lot, many, many more steps. And this has a lot more whatever top end or, or the kick is a lot louder in the blend than I thought or the overheads are, and it's, um, it's eye opening. So yeah, it's cool. Yeah, absolutely. That's very cool. Um, another thing that I wanted to ask you about in relation to your productions is um, I think that you have a great knack for the execution of background vocals. And by that, I mean that I feel like with so much modern music and especially in like the pop punk scene and all that stuff, I feel that so many people tend to have like harmonies and doubles and all sorts of like layers of vocals throughout the entire song. Whereas when I listen to a lot of your productions, I feel like you tend to let your singers breathe a little bit more. And like throughout the majority of the song, it's usually just one voice, but you find this way of adding harmony and doubles when it really counts. And like in those sing-along moments of songs. And so I was wondering if you could talk about how you like to approach deciding when to use harmonies versus leaving a vocal bare. Yeah, I mean, honestly, um, it's it's twofold. Uh, you know, half of that is is always going to be the artist. You know, what whatever they're whatever they want. Um, you know, and um, and if they have a really concrete idea, then then that's it. You know, then then that's that's the idea. Um, unless it seems like it's it's still causing an issue or something. But um, and then I would say the other half is. Um, I think I inherently kind of subscribe to the the uh, the Rick Rubin approach in in terms of the minimalist um, part of record making. In that, um, I would I would rather have the least amount of things possible um, to get the uh, to get the satisfaction um, to get to satisfaction. You know, like the, the satisfactory like um, feeling of 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 you know, the emotion out of that song or the feeling out of that song. Um, I want to do that with the least amount of stuff. <laughs> if for no other reason, just cause it's like, I don't want to waste time just doing other crap, but like, um, but, but not even it's, you know, I've always, um, it's always been a goal of mine to, um, to have less faders, uh, involved in a production and get the most out of those. It's, that's a really, I think that's probably just a challenge, like a personal challenge. It's hard to do that. Um, and, and I, I, I don't always do that. Um, you know, I often end up with tons of stuff, but like, um, and then part of it may be that I came when I learned recording, I was on 24 track. Well, I started on, you know, four track and then eight track. But um, but when I was really making my first records like follow point and stuff like that, that was largely made to two inch 24 track tape. So we only had so many tracks available. And so you had to kind of pick and choose um, your spots and like what was going to be there and what was important. And and hopefully that that rubbed off um, and stuck with me to this day. Um, but that's what I want. You know, it's like, I don't, my goal in, in life is in production life is to, um, to have 24, 32 faders and pull it up. And that's, that's, 
that's the track, you know, it's like, um, and, and that can, uh, that can mean bouncing things and that kind of stuff. But like, I just don't want, a infinite, a mess. I don't, I, I, I hate that. I just don't want that in anything in my life. I don't want that. You know, it's like, I like simplicity. Um, and so that's probably inherently my approach. That's cool. I like that. I think it also, going back to that guitar question, when I was asking about getting wider sounding guitars, you said that you like to pan things all the way left or all the way right. And that's probably with when you combine that with the minimalist approach that you're talking about here, where you don't want to like overcomplicate it, overstack things. I think that that's probably one of the reasons why your tracks do sound as big and clear as they are, because there isn't a billion things fighting for the same space. My, my favorite records that um, sound huge to me, I believe, are often like that. They have less. Um, it's it's more about like what each element, each element has more of a, like an important identity in the song. Um, and so I'm certainly striving to do that. Um, yeah, I, I, I like that. You know, that sounds good to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I think these days it's just so easy to overcomplicate it or to add more because we have infinite tracks, you know, especially when people are doing their own pre-production. It's like, oh, what if I had this like these five synths here and there, like spread these left and right and have these effects going on. And then it's it's like, yeah, maybe that some of that sometimes adds to the, the song or to the vibe of it. But like, is it killing the clarity and, and definition of everything or not? Yeah, it's like, you know, eventually, it, you know. It's like anything else you, you put you put every ingredient in there and it kind of tastes like nothing you know it's like um and but i get it man it's 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 a struggle for me too i have to be it's a con- i have to be very conscious of it and it's it's easy for me to want to add everything and the kitchen sink and it for it to turn into nothing and you just got to be diligent about trying to keep it have some personality in there you know absolutely absolutely um, I'm curious to know when it comes to mixing, what's your normal mindset when you go into a mix? Like, where do you typically start? How do you start? Do you always have like the same process that you follow? Um, well, I kind of, we said earlier, the, the panic thing, um, <laughs> that's panic, panic is not my, yeah, panic first panic happens somewhere down the road in mixing. Um, and, um, usually it starts out with like probably too much confidence, um, and and then that eventually gets crushed. But um, <laughs> I love it. This see. is real uh, talk here. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, okay, mindset. Honestly, my mindset is yeah, yeah. A few different things. Um, one, w- w- one ultimately is is hopefully I've had a conversation. If I let's assume I'm mixing for somebody else, um, which which a lot of the times is the case, um, and in that situation. It's I've I've ideally had a conversation with the artist or the band and found out um, what they're looking for. And uh, and so I learned this from uh, another uh, producer I admire, uh, Mixer, and um, and I, I often use it, which let's see if I can remember exactly. It doesn't matter exactly how I said it. The, the, the question that I'll ask a band is, um, you know, let's say they give me rough mixes. It's. Um, on a scale of one to ten, um, one being um, I stay super close uh, to your rough mix and basically just um, make it sound a little bit better, or ten, I'm like reinventing your song through mixing. What are you expecting? Um, and and I find that to be really helpful because 
uh, for all the obvious reasons. Sometimes you get you get you know people who expected one, but you're thinking ten, or the vice versa. It it just it kind of gives you an idea of where their head is at, and and so that helps me when going into it. It's like okay, am I am I is this experimental mixing or is this like let's just improve and let's let's keep let's keep to the rough. Um, and so that I would say it starts there, um, and um, yeah, and then the next thing honestly is that. I've learned that when I'm when I'm mixing, of course I obsess over all the things I obsess over that that often the band doesn't even notice or care about. But but it's that obsession that often gets it to the point where they're hopefully not caring about it. And I've learned that that those can actually be valuable. Um, and but and I have to go through those insane routines and I have to struggle and hit my head against the console and and do all that shit so that it gets to a point where where those things are past their radar, hopefully. Um, and, um, but having said that, what happens is when you get through that and you submit a mix, all inevitably what usually happens is an artist uh, will come back with some really good feedback and things that I wasn't even thinking about. And it immediately resets your, your focus of, Overall, they're listening to the song and overall and like and and that's so important. And so I I try and remind myself um, because you go you go from this this beginning of this journey to the end. And when you get to the end, there's so many insightful uh, moments from from when you're collaborating with the artist that often I say to myself, boy, like I have to really remember that when I start another mix, because if I'm remembering where they're coming from and really, and I can kind of add that to the equation, then it, it seems to make the journey a little bit, um, better. And so I'm trying to include, I'm trying to think, I'm trying to fast forward to the end, <laughs> um, or to where I, uh, of the process and thinking what that's going to look like and then incorporate that into the beginning. <laughs> um, I think that's awesome. The way you, the way you asked that question of like the scale of one to 10, I, I think that that's such a, great question to ask because everything you're going to do, whether it's even, even in the recording process and the, just the production and writing, it's like, you have to have that gauge of what the, what the vision for the song is going to be and what it should sound like in the end. And that's going to dictate what you do in the recording stage, editing stage, mixing stage, like all, throughout the entire process, you need to have that vision. So by knowing where you're supposed to go at the end of it, then that informs your decisions about how you're going to mix your tracks and how, how processed they're going to be and all that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it also, it helps you understand where, how satisfied they are with where they're at, because, you know, if, if they want 10, if it's like reinvented, then they're either not satisfied with what they have, or they're just open. They just love, ex they love surprises, you know? And, and if you don't give them surprises, they're going to be bored with a mix that sounds slightly better than what you gave them, or even a really polished version of what you gave them. That's still going to be, it's not what they equate mixing as. Some people don't equate that to mixing. They go, yeah, it sounds good, but where's the rest? You know, um, or vice versa. Sometimes you'll, you'll add, you'll add some stuff and they go, what are you doing? Like we decided these things on purpose, like get that nonsense out of here, you know? And yeah, yeah, it helps. It helps kind of narrow that down. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 man, that's a great, great question. I love that. I think everyone should be asking that question. It's, it's so important. And it also it also helps make sure that you don't end up with a billion mix revision notes or or undoing everything that you spent so much time working on, right? Yeah, yeah, oh, oh, totally, man. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Even even asking the artist like which which 
artists do you admire? Which ones are which which music or which songs do you like to listen to the most? You know, like because those are the ones that people are going to be comparing your mix to. So having that sense of what what they're listening and comparing it against, then that definitely is important. That's huge. And and then I often will ask them, and what about it? What about those records do you like? Because uh, like often for me, what happens is they'll say, I like this record, that record, that record. And I'll go listen and go, boy, I don't know. I don't know what this has to do with what we're doing. Or or I'll say, okay, they're looking for that drum sound. They're they're looking for it to be this bright or this, um, you know, aggressive or this mellow or whatever it may be. And I'll interpret that and I'll do that. And then they'll go, what do you, this doesn't have anything to do with what we were showing you. And it turns out they liked the song or they like something totally different about the, the sonic landscape of that record. They like, just like the snare drum sound and the rest they could care less about. And so, yeah, figuring it's important to try and figure out what it is for me. It's been important to figure out what they like about certain records. And then you can kind of keep that in the back of your mind and move forward and do your thing, you know? Um, and it's, it's helpful to know. It's like, okay, this is, this is a, a barometer of one part that they're into. Yeah, absolutely. Because I also think that we tend to listen as engineers, we listen to songs and find what we are attracted to in those songs. You know, it's like, oh, cool, cool snare tone. Like, I guess that's 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 the cool part of this song. Like, let's just do that. Right. But yeah, you're totally but you're right. Yep. They might be like, oh, I like the sound of the, the the harp in the background that you didn't even notice was there. You know, like <laughs> totally. Yeah. And, and, you, and you're trying to to. Yeah, you're you're trying to to capture the the shape of the low end, you know. It's like, and they don't even that's not low end is, means nothing to them. Maybe you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very cool. I mean, it sounds it sounds like you use reference tracks a lot in your productions, whether it's you know dialing your tones or or shaping your production sound overall. Like, would would you agree with that? Um, actually, not. I mean, in my head, but um, I'll. Other than the one thing I was mentioning in terms of like a while back when I had some like isolated drums and stuff for, for a learning thing, um, honestly, not really like, uh, at least if I'm producing, um, I think it's very rare that we pull up another record as a reference to try it. Maybe if, if someone's like, I want, if someone in the band is like, I really want to get the sound and they don't know how to describe it and we'll just say, listen to it. And then we can go, oh, okay. It's, it's like this instrument or whatever. But honestly, I try and I don't really want to, I don't really want to do that. I, I want to listen to music in the control room with bands for fun to like listen to records and that's cool. But, um, I would rather kind of stay within whatever it is they do, um, in terms of referencing, I think I just reference a lot of things in my head because everything that's shaped my opinion musically has come ultimately from a reference. It's come from what I've listened to. I don't know where else it may have come from, but um, yeah, in in your mind, like those records have shaped what music should sound like. So that's your your kind of end end target, right? Yeah, yeah, totally, yeah. When you start a mix, do you typically work in like a similar order of like instruments or what, what's that process normally look like? Um, yeah, usually I'll start, um, I'll, I'll put it all up. Um, I'll try and get, if there's a rough mix and the way it came in doesn't really match, I'll, I'll try and get to the rough basically. Um, and yeah, I'll probably get there first just to get back to zero, basically. Um, and then, yeah, from there, I, I, I usually do um, 
uh, drums, like probably a lot of people. Um, and, and then honestly, maybe bass, but often vocals. Um, I'll get to vocals really quick. Um, I like to have a vocal in and I like it to be, um, I like to try and work things around that. Um, and so I want that to kind of be around as soon as I can. Um, at least the lead vocal, not, not the backgrounds really, but, um, um, but yeah, I'll start with drums, you know, and, and I'll, I'll do the, the pretty basic, like, um, you know, I have like kind of basic systems set up in terms of like gain staging. And, um, I have some like various meters that I, I use as, as ballpark references, you know, for like kind of, um, like kick and snare, uh, bass, um, just so that, um, uh, so that things build up in a, uh, in a ballpark in, uh, in terms of how it hits all my gear and all that stuff. I don't want to be looking at, I might be kind of getting ahead of your question here. I'm not sure, but no, no, um, no. that's good. I like this. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so when I transitioned to forever ago in the box mixing, um, um, I use, um, you know, a bunch of plugins across the two bus, um, or a bunch, you know, whatever, a handful. Uh, and I, I still do use some analog hardware across the two mix, um, uh, which gives me some visual representation, but, uh, but basically, um, I kind of set up a system a while back, looking at it now here, trying to remember. Um, and it's got three kind of, <laughs> it might be considered overkill, but it's kind of got three stages of metering, like visual metering that I can just glance at just to know. Um, it's all in an effort to not have to think basically about like um, my mixing so I can be more reactive. But, but for instance, so um, it used to be that like I would, if I was putting stuff up, you know, I have a compressor on my two bus and then I have a limiter at the end, which eventually comes off for mastering. Um, but in order for me to know how hard I'm hitting everything, I'd have to have those plugins open on a second screen. And it was kind of a pain in the ass. I didn't like that. I, I just wanted to get rid of that. Uh, but I always wanted to be able to glance over and see what's going on. And so for me, I learned three stages of metering that were helpful to understand. The first is I have a set of actual hardware VU meters um, and and those come first on my mix bus before any gear or plugins happen. Um, and so I've set those up so that I can basically, um, if I've got my kick at negative six and my snare at negative six and my bass at negative six-ish, um, you know, it's not an exact science. This is a ballpark. But but if I've got them happening, then I know that when I pretty much build up the rest of the mix, um, everything is going to lay into my, what comes next is my, uh, I think my two bus compressor. Everything's going to hit that in the general place that I want it to hit, generally speaking. Um, and, and then, let's see, uh, and then I have some like kind of saturation and processing from there. Um, and, and then I have another meter that's like a, the LUFS, the LUFS meter. Um, that, that comes um, after that processing, but before my limiter. Um, and, and that meter tells, tells me what's going to mastering um, because that, lim that final limiter is going to get removed. Um, for mastering. And so I can glance over and I have what my mastering engineers usually ask for in terms of a, a basic like headroom. And so I can glance over and keep an eye on that. And, and it's kind of telling me, okay, after my two bus processing, am I still in a healthy place for mastering? And, um, and then I have a limiter, which is what's going out to the artist and the label or whoever in management. Um, and 
simply for playback, that limiter again gets removed, but it's there. And then I have another LUFS meter um, that uh, tells me what's happening after that, the, fi the, the very end. So the, what's, what my limiter is. And so then I know not only what am I sending out to people, like how crushed am I, um, but it also links to my monitor controller. It's like a digital output. Um, so if I switch over to Spotify or a reference mix or anything, it will follow. And so it will tell me what anybody is, is measuring at. So I can quickly kind of go, here's their reference. Their reference is negative eight. Um, and my mix is negative nine. So actually, I've got a little room. I, I can push mine a little harder because um, uh, whatever they're listening to is crushed a little bit more. So if I need to get some more volume, I'm, you know. But if I'm at negative 12, then it's like, oh, I should really push harder because th this is going to look, they're going to, they're not, it's not going to feel loud enough to them. Or if I'm at negative five, it's like, Jesus, I'm like, something, I'm killing something along the way. And so those three meters, basically, again, they, they kind of just quickly tell me where I'm at coming into my two bus, uh, what's going to hit mastering, what's, um, what's going out to the artist. And then I can mix kind of freely. It's like, you know, I can, I can throw up my kick and snare and my bass. I can shape them. I can look at my VU meter. And I've kind of designed it so everything basically falls into place. And then, you know, and if I got to adjust adjust how things are getting hit overall, I have obviously faders like everybody does um, to adjust that. But yeah, it's like, or else, I don't know. It's like I put up a kick drum and it's like, that sounds good, but like, where am I? And I'm maybe by the time I'm done, it's way over the top. Or by the time I'm done, it's way under. And I just don't want to deal with that. It's like, it's just, I just want to take that out of my life if I can. So those meters quickly tell me that kind of thing. That's awesome. I love the way you explain that because I think it's something a lot of people don't even think to do. And 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 or or like you said, like you know, you, you might might have plugins up, but you know, you need a whole separate screen just for your meters there. So I, I you know, I think it's I think it's really cool the way you do it. So just just for clarification, so when you said your first meter is about kind of the individual tracks, is that just like you set everything up at like minus nine or whatever? And that's just kind of like your your starting point with all of your tracks inside of your Pro Tools session, or is that like where you start off with maybe kick and snare or something like that? Oh, it's, it's specifically kick and snare and bass. Yeah. So the idea is that kick, snare, bass um, together when they're playing, um, they're probably hitting the VU meter at like negative three or so, and then um, which is arbitrary in terms of it doesn't really mean anything in the digital world anymore. It's just the way I was kind of used to it from an analog console. And I've set up everything else to follow and gain staged it. It could be it could be negative 10. It could be plus two really on the view meter because again it's arbitrary in the digital domain. But I found that if I if I hit negative three with those, then when my mix is going, the meters are looking right. They're looking like they used to look on a console or on a tape machine, um, and they just look in a healthy place. That that's it. Gotcha. Um, yeah, it's it's just your starting point, really. Yeah, and 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 to do this, I had to basically take a bunch of mixes that um, I liked and made sense to me, and worked backwards. You know, I had to basically go, okay, where did that measure at, and then. Um, and now how do I get it to measure for mastering correctly if it wasn't measured there? And then really it's about those v, VU meters. It's like adjusting that to go, okay, like how does that work so that if I hit this, everything else falls into place basically. Um, yeah, but you're, it could be whatever. It's, it's more just about finding a system that works for you and then reverse engineering it so you have some visual points and going, okay, if I do that, I'm okay. I can, I can keep moving, you know. 
That's awesome. I, I, I really love that system. And I, I mix in a very similar way, too, where I always like to check my kick and snare and bass as well. It's like kind of my first starting point. To me, like that, those are my, my first few tracks that I load up. And if i at those levels, it's very similar to you, then like I know that the rest of the mix is going to just build up at, at a good level overall. And, and, and I think it's important for us to just point out here that you're using VU meters, and those VU meters are calibrated to something... In the, in the digital realm. So, you know, minus six is very different on VU meters than it is in like the Pro Tools meter, for example. Totally. Uh, yeah. And I, uh, yeah, it, uh, that's a very good point. Yeah. I don't even know. My system is set up for me. It's not, it's not a, don't, don't copy that based on what I'm saying. It's just, it's arbitrary. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it's just, are you hitting, are you hitting your compressors the way you want to hit them? Are you without, overloading your two bus and are you getting to the final place you need to get to reverse engineer it find some visual markers and move on you know like that that's it yeah <laughs> <laughs> i love it that's awesome do you find that um i was curious to know about like low end and how you like to manage your low end especially when it comes to kick and bass do you find that it's it mainly just has to do with the leveling of those two tracks and, and hitting that sweet spot on your meters or or is there more to it there's a lot more to it. Yeah, I, I wish it was that easy. <laughs> yeah, uh, if if you know of a trick that's that easy, please tell me. <laughs> no, I, I asked that because I've heard like Jakir King, for example, say like that that's his way of getting kick and kick and bass to lock in all the time is just get the get them at that level. Um, uh, but I uh, but well, I do feel like there's more to it. <laughs> okay, yeah, <laughs> I love that. Obviously, whatever he's doing, he's doing. Uh, He's doing it well. <laughs> it's working. <laughs> so um, I got to ask Shakir about that. But um, yeah, let's see. Um, y- no, I mean, you know, you can, <laughs> I could, I could put up faders of, of kick, snare and, and bass and have a meter at, at my metering thing and, and then put the mix together and it's not going to sound anything like I want it to. It, it's about the tones being where, I think that they need to be and then they're metering. So, um, yeah, you know, getting low end to speak is, is often about, um, getting everything else in the right place. And it's often about, um, so, you know, low end usually kick and bass. Um, but, um, those, those instruments have so much other information in them and, and it's often about getting them to live, in the right space, in the mid range, in the top end, um, and, and the low end. And, and so, um, you know, a lot of that stuff is, is getting, geez. Yeah. Getting, getting their tone structure happening to where, uh, it plays on a really small set of speakers. And, um, and then when you put it on a big set of speakers, um, it's still speaking, but the low end extension is still there and managing that there's, there's so much involved in it, you know, it's like, um, yeah, because if you want to get those instruments to speak against a bunch of guitars and other things, they're going to have a ton of, of presence too. You know, it's not just low end, obviously. Um, and if it was, you would never hear it on a system, uh, on a small system or, or you wouldn't, they wouldn't have punch, you know? Um, so it's, you just got to work at it. You know, you got to work for it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I like what you said there about getting the tone first because it is super important because low end does eat up a lot of headroom and you you can crank the shit out of your low end and your meters could be pinning and you might not even hear it at that point, you know, like depending on which frequencies are boosting. So that's why it's so important to get your tone the way you want it so that when you are doing your metering trick there of like getting things to a certain ballpark, 
you're actually hearing things the way they should be and not just being fooled by that ex- excessive low end and you're in eating up your headroom, right? A hundred percent. I mean, take an extreme example. Um, you could, you could have a record that all the tones were really dark and it had virtually no presence and, and, um, and the kick and bass were just for lack of a better term were muddy, but maybe they were just really thumpy and you like that. Um, that, that record is going to, is going to take a ton of headroom. Um, you're not going to be able to get that record nearly as loud as if you took a record and you got rid of all of the low end or, or, or take, take a record that's just take, take an acoustic guitar and a vocal with, with no low end. You can get that thing screaming loud. I think people have probably gone through this where if they have an acoustic track on a record, on an actual record and they're mastering it, they realize they can get the one with acoustic guitar and vocal only too loud. They can get it louder than the rest of the record because it has no low end. So it takes up no energy. Um, and so, yeah, it's like, you have to manage those. You you, you have to find, um, yeah, you, you, you just got to find the, the, yeah, I guess you, you just got to find the, the tone balance you want, but, uh, or else it's not gonna, um, the metering is, is arbitrary if, if you don't consider that. <laughs> yeah. And going back to the earlier thing of like coming up with that vision for the song and listening to what the artist is going for, like you have to go off of that to dictate your, your tones first and then everything else just kind of comes from there. I think once you, once you've got that vision, right? Yeah. Yeah. You learn that stuff as you go. Awesome. Cool, man. Well, I don't want to take up too much more of your day, so we can start to wrap up here. If people want to learn more about you or follow you online or, or hire you to work with them, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, sure. Yeah, they can they can go to my website, which I think is SeanO'KeefeProducer.com. Uh, I um, was just having to figure that out the other day. Um, it is. It and is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, OK, there you go. Um, yeah, you can you can hit me up there. I have an Instagram I sometimes uh, post on. And um, yeah, please hit me up I, I, on my website. I, uh, I have a, a direct email for me personally. And uh, and if if anybody's interested in, in hiring me, um, th- there's my manager's uh, uh, link on there, too. And they, they can do that. But absolutely. Yeah. Reach out. Yeah. Awesome. And lastly, are there any cool projects that you're working on right now that you might be able to talk about? Yeah. Um, yeah, I did. Um, let's see. I, uh, it literally just got mastered, um, yesterday. Um, I, I produced, um, and mixed, uh, a, a new record for a band called beach bunny, um, who, uh, they're from Chicago and I love them. They're, um, yeah, they're a really, really cool band. Um, I did their last, um, I also mixed, and co-produced their last single. They did a feature with uh, Tegan and Sarah on it, and that that came out earlier this year. Um, and the the record I just produced, um, I think, is going to come out next year. And I think the first single is going to come out maybe in a month or so. But uh, but they're great, man. They're they're such a cool band. They're doing really well. Um, they're well, while I was making their record. Um, they all receive their gold records from their last single, um, from their last record. Um, and yeah, so I, they're, they're really, um, they seem to have a really, uh, good fan base and, um, they're doing riot fest. I'm going to go see them at riot fest on Friday and, um, you know, they're out there They're They've got a bunch of tours and all that stuff coming up. And, um, so I'm really excited about that record coming up and uh, yeah, it was a fun one. Awesome. I'll have to check it out for sure. Well, well, Sean, thank you so much for taking the time to to do this. I think you shared so much awesome information here. And like, I love just your, your approach to 
bettering yourself through like th- right from the beginning we talked about like you know learning your skills and and paying attention to those little details that you can improve upon and um and then you know as far as like talking about the songwriting and and just your approach to mixing like i think you shared a lot of great advice here so thanks again for taking the time to, to do this it was awesome thanks man yeah i, I appreciate you having me it, re- it was great Awesome. So that was my interview with Sean O'Keefe, and that was a lot of fun to do. And I just really love the way he analyzes things, and you could tell he pays attention to the little details. And there were so many great nuggets of information in here. I love what he was talking about when he was talking about uh, taking reference tracks of specific instruments and using that to measure your tracks against. I think that that's a really cool technique. Like we've talked about reference tracks in the podcast before. And certainly if you're in any of my courses, we've definitely talked about reference tracks, but I love how he takes it that extra step further by really soloing in on the specific instruments. And I think that's really cool to keep in mind because as he mentioned in the podcast, the sounds of your tracks when they're isolated are going to sound very different than they do in the context of the mix. So Very cool idea by uh, getting reference tracks of just individual instruments. Very, very cool. I also really love his approach to metering, and I thought that was really insightful to hear how he stages his metering and how he has different meters for different parts of his process. It's something that's so small but often overlooked in the process of establishing your workflow. And when you have a system like this that allows you to just quickly set your levels and not have to worry about the technical stuff. Instead, you can just focus on being creative. That's what this is all about. So it was really insightful to hear how he implements meters into his workflow and uh, definitely a very cool approach that I would suggest everyone try out as well. So I hope you enjoyed that episode just as much as I did. And if you did, make sure to definitely subscribe to this podcast. That way you're notified about all new episodes once they go live inside of Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen to your podcast. And definitely make sure to check out MasterYourMix.com. That's where I help musicians create pro-sounding recordings and mixes from their home studio. And on the website, I've got a ton of great resources designed to help make the process easy for you. And one of which that you're going to want to check out is called The Mixing Mindset. This is an Amazon number one best-selling book that I put out a few years ago. And inside, I'm going to detail my workflow, what kind of things you should be paying attention to when it comes to EQ, compression, effects, automation, all of the things that are needed in order to make your songs sound amazing and make them sound as good as your favorite records. So if you haven't checked it out already yet, definitely make sure to go to MasterYourMix.com and check out the Mixing Mindset book. All right, that is it for this episode, guys. I really hope you enjoyed this, and I look forward to talking to you in the next one. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.